San Quentin Prison in California has always had a reputation as one of the toughest, most violent prisons anywhere. But 12 years ago, the prison's in-house newspaper produced by inmates began to change things. What can journalism do for incarcerated people and for the prisons in which they serve their sentences? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your total justice geek and guide to our chaotic criminal justice system. And still so fortunate to have that day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Now, before we get into the episode, we want you to become a member and a supporter of what we do here on Criminal Injustice. That's right, we're member-supported. Go to our Patreon link at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice where you can join and get access to extra content like our special series on the criminal justice platforms of the 2020 candidates for president and so much more. First 100 people to join get a signed copy of my 2012 book, Failed Evidence, Why Law Enforcement Resists Science. San Quentin Prison. The Q, the very name of this infamous institution, will bring images to your mind. Perhaps you think of Johnny Cash, who famously performed in the place in 1969, producing a now classic album of songs. If you've ever heard the record, you can probably still hear the inmates whooping in the background. San Quentin, you've been living hell to me. You blistered me since 1963. I've seen them come and go and I've seen them die. And long ago I stopped asking why. San Quentin, I hate every inch of you. You cut me and you scarred me through and through. And I'll walk out a wiser, weaker man Mr. Congressman, you can't understand But Johnny Cash aside, what the name San Quentin should bring to mind are the worst kinds of associations. It was not just a tough prison, but a place of human degradation, lethal violence, racist gangs and racial tensions, and always lurking that lethal violence. And it had been this way for decades, really forever. Here's some audio from a documentary called San Quentin Unlocked. San Quentin, it's California's oldest and most infamous prison. Built in 1852, it's home to many of the state's most brutal criminal and sexual offenders. Notoriously violent and in some areas dangerously overcrowded, the prison has earned a telling nickname. It's called The Arena, and it's where California's most vicious criminals square off. It may surprise you to learn that at San Quentin and at dozens of other prisons, incarcerated people published newspapers. By one count, there were as many as 250 prison newspapers in 1959. The San Quentin News began publication back in the 40s. 
Well, with the greater assertiveness of the incarcerated population in the 1960s and 1970s, relations between these internal news sources and prison administrations became tense. Incarcerated news reporters wanted freedom to write and publish articles critical of their institutions. With rare exceptions, wardens and administrators resisted. When prisons interfered with editorial decisions of publications from prisons, the staff actually went to court, that is, the inmate staff, and they often won. By the 1980s, many prison administrations had simply had it. Rather than try to control the papers, they shut them down altogether. The San Quentin News suffered that same fate. By 1990, with just a few exceptions in the country, prison newspapers had all but disappeared. But then, more than 20 years after its closure, something unexpected happened at San Quentin. A warden with an unconventional streak, in his last year before retirement and looking for, quote, things that would rekindle some pride and some dignity, close quote, uh, that warden decided he would bring back the San Quentin News. The new version of the paper began publishing in 2008, this time with a philosophy that did not feature the activist passion of its writings in the 1960s and 70s. Its tone was very different, and this time the paper would have the guidance and advice of a group of retired professional journalists on the outside to guide it. What kind of mission would the paper have? What purpose would it serve if it was not there to air grievances and agitate for those incarcerated? Our guest today became one of those guiding professionals for the revived San Quentin News. He knew the news business, and he also knew the world of California's prisons from his time as a reporter. And this allowed him to witness the transformative effects of the San Quentin News and journalism itself on the institution, on the incarcerated people writing the paper, and on his students, and even personally, on himself. His new book tells that story. Bill Drummond is professor of journalism at the University of California, Berkeley. His award-winning journalism career includes stints at the Louisville Courier-Journal, where he covered the civil rights movement, and then at the Los Angeles Times, where he was a local reporter covering, among other stories, the racial tensions in California's prisons. Mr. Drummond also served as L.A. Times bureau chief in New Delhi and Jerusalem, and later as a Washington correspondent. He was appointed a White House fellow by then-President Gerald R. Ford and later became Jimmy Carter's associate press secretary. Mr. Drummond joined NPR in 1977, and he became the founding editor of Morning Edition, one of the network's flagship news programs. While a member of the journalism faculty at UC Berkeley, Mr. Drummond became an advisor to the San Quentin News, a newspaper produced by the incarcerated people inside San Quentin Prison. In his new book, Mr. Drummond tells the story of how journalism helped to change San Quentin Prison and how doing the job of journalism in that paper changed all those involved, the incarcerated people and those outside the prison, like Mr. Drummond and his students. The book is called Prison Truth, 
The Story of the San Quentin News. It's published by University of California Press, and we'll put a link to it on our website. Bill Drummond, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. I appreciate it. So, Prison Truth, this great book, covers a lot of ground. And to I think to fully understand the story, you take us back to your own background as a journalist when you come to the L.A. Times, as I said, after a stint in Louisville at the Courier-Journal, and you end up writing some incredibly important pieces. Um, by sheer coincidence, you write about the assassination of, of Robert Kennedy in Los Angeles in 68. You interview Eldridge Cleaver, one of the most visible black figures of that whole era. Uh, but for impact and scope, I thought uh, one of your biggest pieces of that period was a page one story about racial tensions in California's prisons. And that was something that was completely invisible to the vast majority of people in California, but a huge problem that was about to break, not just in California, but nationally. Can you tell us about that? I mean, how did you end up, how did that end up as your story? How did you put it together and how did you lay the, how did that lay the groundwork for your later work with prisons? I would like to say that I uh, was prescient, but I wasn't. I was just an opportunist. And an opportunist. When I got to the LA Times, <laughs> <laughs> in 1967. I was the newest guy on the staff, and I was very ambitious, and I wanted to do big stories. And I was working nights for the most part. And along came uh, a story about the Soledad Brothers. The Soledad Brothers. The famous, yes. Famous Soledad Brothers. There was a murder of a prison guard at Soledad State Prison in Salinas, and it was covered basically as a wire story. Uh, this uh, correctional officer was thrown off a tier and killed, and later three black inmates were indicted by the, uh, by the grand jury, and they were going to be tried for murder. And these stories were being published, and there was a lot of undercurrent among the activist community around the Bay Area in Northern California. And I'm sitting down in Los Angeles and seeing these stories played inside. And I said, you know, there's got to be more to it than this. Mm -hmm. At the time, the uh, L.A. Times city room, there were like 60 of us, uh, except for me and another gentleman named Ray Rogers, it was all white. Uh And there was one woman, Dorothy Vanderbilt. And it was just the nature of the game. Uh, other people in the newsroom were not interested in that story. And uh, fortunately for me, um, I had an editor who was very open-minded about this, and I told him that, look, you know, I'd like to find out a little bit more about this, what's going on. And uh, he, you know, in those days you could do that. You can't do it now because there's so much middle management you'd have to fight your way through. Uh-huh. Uh, but Bill Thomas said, yeah, fine, go see what this is all about. And with that, I got off nights, thank God. Uh-huh. And so I think I took about a week or ten days, and I toured the prison system. That's when I first went to San Quentin. Uh-huh. And it was clear that this, all this stuff was going on. It was going on, there was no question. And it was on everybody's mind in, the, uh, in the, what was then the Department of Corrections. Now it's the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. 
So it was easy enough to just ask the question. And the other important factor at that time was that the uh, director of corrections was a guy named Roy K. Procunier. Uh-huh. I know that name. R.K. Procunier. Mm-hmm. And he was a very open-minded director of corrections. And, and uh, he basically gave me the blessing. He said that, you know, anywhere you want to go, you can talk to anybody. And the word went out. And so whenever I showed up, I showed up at... San Quentin, at uh, Soledad, at uh, Dual Vocational Institute, these other prisons in the system, there were only eight at the time, they all cooperated. I talked to any inmate I wanted to, went into the adjustment center, that is the solitary confinement. So I had the run of the place. You really did. I I came back, and I had all this stuff, and then, of course, when I got back to the office, they put me back on nights. So... (laughs) uh, (laughs) <laughs> that was the nature of journalism. Yeah. So I was, I was doing my night assignments, my police beat work, but preparing this story, uh, kind of in my spare time. And it just accidentally happened that my story got done, and it was a huge story, it was, you know, like three thousand words. And I gave it to the boss, and he was reading it, and that was that fateful uh, time back in uh, uh, 1970 when. Uh, Jonathan Jackson, the brother, oh, brother, brother of George Jackson, yes, tried to uh, stage this dramatic breakout uh, at the Marin Civic Center, and so that story was sitting on the editor's desk and ready to go. And right after that, those events happened on the Friday. My story ran on the Sunday, uh-huh. and it made us look like you know we were prescient, but it was just a complete accident, uh, you know, one of those things when you say, well, I was in the right place at the right time. Uh-huh. It was serendipity. Yeah, yeah. Well, so often, serendipity and good timing involves being completely prepared for something nobody else is looking at. And it sounds like that's what happened to you. That thing with George Jackson and Jonathan Jackson and Marin resulting in the death, I think, of a judge and some other people uh, had the nation's attention, and you happen to be all ready for it. And, and that event happens. Your story comes out, and it turns out, as people are wondering, what the heck, you can explain it. There's boiling racial tension in California's prisons. The, the, the racial tensions were a result of, uh, I, I don't want to use a highfalutin term, but Uh, I can't avoid it. It's historical forces, historical forces that have been underway in California for years. And it it kind of surrounded us, and people just didn't take notice because it was happening so slowly. Well, the first indication that something was different was uh, back in 1965 when the Watts riot happened. Yes. Up, Up until that time, ironically, people used to point to Los Angeles, as kind of a beacon of uh, how uh, Negroes, which is a term we used in that time, Mm -hmm. Negroes would be able to uh, enjoy a better life because they had access to relatively inexpensive, single-family, detached housing. Uh It wasn't like Harlem. It wasn't like Newark, where you had these massive, uh, awful uh, high-rises that you know, were slums before they were even completed. Los Angeles was basically low-rise and sprawl 
And to drive down, you know, 103rd Street, you'd say, yeah, this is, a, this is a nice neighborhood. But then all of a sudden, that myth was dispelled in the Watts riot. Mm-hmm. It, it was an indication that there was some kind of malaise that was going on. Trouble some in kind paradise. Of racial yes. Mm-hmm. Racial tensions in the neighborhoods, in the community. Uh, and, of course, it got reflected in the prison system. Yes. The prison system absorbed a lot of the conflict uh, that was happening on the streets. And little by little, the California prison system, which had been predominantly white uh, by 1969-1970, blacks and Latinos made up the majority of the prison population. And that was a change, too, yes. Demographic change both inside and out. That's why I spent so much time describing... uh, the Johnny Cash appearance at San Quentin in 1969. Right. A famous, famous performance there by Johnny Cash. I talked about it in the introduction, and it looks like one thing, but by the time you get to 1969, uh, San Quentin doesn't really look like that mostly white audience, does it? San Quentin was in the process of change, and there were huge racial frictions. Uh, the 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 music album doesn't really address that, but uh, there was a, a, a British film crew that did a documentary about it. And they, bless their hearts, they went behind the scenes and they talked to people in the tears in the cells. And the constant theme was that uh, the white people were upset that there were these assertive Negroes who were demanding their rights. And this was an undercurrent of that whole documentary, but it was something that was missed on the on the audience that was listening to, uh, you know, just the songs. Until you hear Johnny Cash sing, you know, that that anthem, you know, San Quentin's been held to me. <laughs> exactly. Then you have to wonder, well, well, what's going on with this? Every time he'd sing a phrase, that place would rock. Yes. Well, you you take all of these uh, people put them under pressure of being confined, and then the racial tension, uh, I mean, it's a formula for disaster, and that's what played out over the next 15 or 20 years. Yes. So as this is happening, and as you've called attention to it in your reporting, um, the San Quentin News is present. It is there. Uh, It exists, and it begins to be a kind of outlet for inmates to... Uh, to make grievances known, uh, to agitate, to criticize openly the administration and the prison itself. Isn't that right? That's what happened. The, the, you have to back up a little bit. The, the, the San Quentin News was established by uh, Warden Duffy uh, back in 1942. And, you know, he was very old school. He thought that, you know, we wanted to uh, dispel any rumors. So we've got to have a newspaper. Mm-hmm. And it was part of the vocational training that they had. They had a, a printing plant, so they were able to uh, physically produce a newspaper. And you train people to have printing skills, and they'd get out and they could get jobs. Uh-huh. So it was a very practical consideration. Uh, the newspaper at the time was run along the lines of a kind of a, uh, uh, a neighborhood newspaper. It had a little clique of writers, 
and uh, they wrote about everything. I mean, if you go and look at the back issues, you see uh, little police shorts about guys getting stabbed and things like that. And <laughs> that, that, that is, there's something so odd and funny about that that you have a police blotter for an inside the prison newspaper. Exactly. Exactly. It was it was like a it was it was like a tabloid, and uh, different guys had columns that they uh, they wrote. They were very uh, inside and and I thought self indulgent. Uh, at the time, there were lots and lots of uh, celebrities that would visit San Quentin, and there were stories about that. You have to think now. Uh, in those days, San Quentin and Folsom. Uh, Another famous California highway. prison, yes. And, and, and that was about the ball game. Eventually, when I was visiting in 1970, there were eight male prisons, eight in the whole state. Now there are 35, yes. 35 prisons. And as I point out in the book, today we have more prison guards than there were prisoners oh, in 1970. That's just a stunning statistic. Well, what, what happened is that after the troubles began in the early 70s, and with the help of the news media, which, uh, which I think helped sensationalize what was going on in the country, there was a, 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 a law enforcement momentum that picked up. Mm-hmm. And it found fruition in California in the 1980s with Reagan and Duke Magian and Pete Wilson and a succession of governors. And they decided that there would be no more revolving door. Uh, people would go to jail and they would stay there. So there was a big prison building boom Huge. that took place in the 80s. And so uh, by the time we got to uh, 2012, when I started visiting the prison, uh, there were 160,000 inmates in California. And that's when the Supreme Court stepped in and said that uh, the... The, the the level of of of, of, of uh, distress that the prisoners were undergoing amounted to cruel and inhuman punishment. Right, violated the Eighth Amendment. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's when things, the, the whole kind of narrative about prison and what it was all about, uh, began to change. Yes, Michelle Alexander's book. I have to give her a, a big acknowledgement. That's right. That helped turn the tide. Sure. Yes. So thinking about prison really has changed. But if we go back to the 70s and 80s and the San Quentin News in that period, uh, there were all these struggles, the tension back and forth between the newspaper and prison administrators who wanted to control it. And ultimately they decided, well, we can't control it. The courts wouldn't allow them to editorially control it. And they shut it down. In 1982, and it was one of many, many prison newspapers that were shut down entirely. Wasn't that true? That's, that's exactly what happened. And you see, our Constitution uh, is kind of reflective of the, of the contradiction in our own minds about crime. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, in our, I'm talking about, you know, as a society. Uh-huh. And... We don't quite know how to deal with people that we put in prison. On one hand, we don't want them to be oppressed to the point that it's, it's awful and it disgusts us. Cruel but on the other hand, uh, how do you deal with them? Well, the Constitution says 
uh, Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of the press. Therefore, the courts consistently say uh, prison administration may not censor. But on the other hand, there's nothing the Constitution says that they have to condone a newspaper. Right. And what was going on in the 70s and the 80s was that uh, activists, editors, and writers got control of the newspaper, and the same thing happened at San Quentin, and they began to be uh, obstreperous. They began to uh, uh, take activist stands. They opposed the death penalty. One of the uh, famous clashes at San Quentin was that they wrote an editorial opposing the death penalty, and uh, the prison administration said, you can't run that. So they ran blank space uh-huh. <laughs> with, yes. with censored. And so the, the result was that the, the prison confiscated all those issues. The inmates went to court, and of course the, the courts say, you know, obviously this, you can't do this. This is censorship. Mm-hmm. Well, it, incident after incident like that, not just at San Quentin, but also at uh, Soledad, and uh, I think there were about a half a dozen other prison newspapers around California. Uh, the Department of Correction just said, uh, no, we've had enough of this, and they put all of them out of business. Yes, and the San Quentin News, the last one, finally went out of business in 1982. And it's not until 2008, there's a new warden there uh, towards the end of his career. He decides he'll revive the paper. And that seemed very unlikely, kind of out of left field. Uh, His own superiors didn't like the idea, but he decided to do it anyway. Talk about that. Well, there's... You know, there's. I think the the people that administer our prisons are uh, often vilified, and in some cases, I, I assure you, <laughs> it's deserved. <laughs> yes, but but, but the ones not that always. I have met, yes, not, not always. always. Yes. In fact, you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a really uh, uh, tough decision when you're sitting there and you have responsibility for four thousand lives. And if something goes down and somebody gets killed, it's on your conscience. So what they want to do is, you know, make sure that everybody goes home in one piece. Because most of them are going to go home at some point. Are going to go home. So how do how do you deal with that? One one uh, prison official I once interviewed said that we should change the name of it to the Department of Irony. <laughs> Because we're asking them <laughs> to do something uh, that is is essentially not possible to do. To they can do it in Norway, right? Yes. Well, you have a homogeneous population, and it doesn't have this kind of history of, of racial tension and violence that we have. But nevertheless, you have to have prison. So, what are you going to do with it? Well, along comes uh, uh, Warden Ayers. And uh, he decides, well, why don't we do this? I mean, it's, one man, uh, Marvin Much, who's, who's, who's an ex-San uh, Quentin inmate, uh, and now he's on the outside and he's a, a, an activist, he told me this story. He was, uh, Much was imprisoned at the time that they brought back the San Quentin News. Yes. And uh, Much told me that... Uh, there, <laughs> there was there was a movement 
of underground journalism that was going on in San Quentin during the time that the newspaper was suppressed. And somebody had access to a mimeograph machine, and they were running this, uh, this newspaper that uh-huh. was called The Outlaw. <laughs> the Outlaw, and perfect, yes. The Outlaw. It was like all of the stuff that the warden didn't want you to know about. And it would circulate, you know, uh, by hand uh, uh, among the, the men on the main line. And so the warden decided, well, we've got to put a stop to this. So they, sh- they did a big shakedown of the whole prison. Uh-huh. To try to find it. Well, yeah, they found the mimeograph machine and the other uh, stuff that was contraband, and they seized it. But they also found a whole uh, trove of old issues of the San Quentin News. Uh-huh. And they presented these to Warden Ayers, and Ayers looked at him, and he said, well, you know, this is not bad. Why don't we do this again? <laughs> and so that was the impetus for getting this going. Uh-huh. So. There were there were no there was nobody in that prison population that knew anything about publishing a newspaper. But uh, uh, what Ayers did, to his great credit, he was able to enlist uh, some uh, journalism uh, uh, professionals from Marin County, and they came in as advisors. Mm-hmm. And these these people are bless their hearts. They're still involved today. And they're the ones who more or less got it organized and got it back on its feet again. And because these were like middle-of-the-road pillars of the community, and they had a lot of credibility, uh, uh, they were able to get this thing reestablished. And then the uh, the other fortuitous event was that uh, there were the, the initial inmates that they recruited were, in my opinion, extraordinary people. They were quick learners. They... They were inspired. They saw the potential for this. They worked together, and they got the thing back on its feet. Now, the other part of the story that's amazing to me is that almost as soon as the newspaper came back in 2012, I'm sorry, in 2008, Mm -hmm. as soon as the newspaper came back, the Department of Corrections decided to cut the budget, and they eliminated the printing press. The, the 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 very machine needed to print it. Well, they said that this was obsolete and they were going to move in another direction, so the print shop closed down. And the point, it could have gone out of business, could have stopped right there. <laughs> there, was a, there was an inmate at San Quentin by the name of Michael Harris, who was one of the uh, co-founders of Death Row Records. Uh-huh, Suge Knight's co- co-founder. Suge Knight's co-conspirator, uh-huh. and Michael, they approached Michael and said, how would you like to be editor? And Michael said, sounds like a plan. And Michael was uh, the editor uh, who also had deep pockets, and he wrote checks to pay the printing plant on the outside to publish the initial uh, issues of San Quentin News and keep it in operation until they were able to raise grant money. I'll be damned. I mean, that is the <laughs> most unlikely thing one could re- imagine in a situation like this. Let's take a quick break here. We're with Bill Drummond. Uh, he is the author of a new book called Prison Truth, the story of the San Quentin News. Stay with us for more. We'll be right back. 
Catch Dave on tour with his new book, A City Divided, Race, Fear, and the Law in Police Confrontations. Upcoming tour dates on the schedule include March 16th in Cincinnati at the Mercantile Library, 6 p.m. Back in our hometown of Pittsburgh on March 23rd, Dave will speak at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law at 5 p.m. March 27th at 6 o'clock in Toledo, the Henry Hartman MD Memorial Lecture. And on April 15th, Dave will be in Chicago giving a talk at the Chicago Kent College of Law, 3 p.m. Baltimore, April 16th, 5 o'clock at the University of Baltimore School of Law. We'll keep updating this calendar as new dates are added. In the meantime, you can learn more about the book at acitydivided.com. Everyone wants to keep their home and family safe. Whether it's from a break-in, a fire, flooding, or a medical emergency, Simply Safe Home Security delivers award-winning 24/7 protection. With Simply Safe, you don't just get cameras and sensors, you get the best professional monitors in the business. They've got your back day and night ready to send police, fire, EMTs, whatever you need when you need them most, straight to your door. Now, when my family had the job of selling our family home after it was empty, we knew we needed a security system we could count on. My brother, the electrician, the guy who's the most tech-savvy of all of us, he recommended we go with Simply Safe, and boy, am I glad we did. It was easy, it was affordable, and it was good. It performed, and we were safe. Simply Safe protects every inch of your home. You can set it up yourself in just 30 minutes. It's really easy. Then Simply Safe's professionals take over, monitoring your home 24/7 and ready to send help the moment they get an alarm. Plus, with Simply Safe, there's no long-term contract. There are no hidden fees and no installation costs. Right now, my listeners get a free home security camera when you purchase a Simply Safe system at simplysafe.com/injustice. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. Visit simplysafe.com/injustice for your free security camera today. That's simplysafe, S I M P L I S-A-F-E, that's simplysafe.com slash injustice. Hi everyone, David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice, and our guest is Bill Drummond. Uh, He's the author of a new book called Prison Truth, the story of the San Quentin News, published by UCAL Press. We'll put a link to it up on our website. And before the break, Bill, we were talking about the rebirth of the San Quentin News in 2008 under Warden Ayers and the fortuity of having an inmate with very deep pockets who could pay for the printing and all. So it gets rolling again under the guidance of these outside editors who are teaching the inmates how to run a newspaper. But it's very interesting. In your book, you say this was not the same newspaper with the same tone or the same mission as in the 70s and 80s. That had been a very Uh, um, uh, oppositional newspaper, agitating for the inmates and so forth, Uh, lots of complaints. This is a different being, this uh, San Quentin News that restarts in 2008. Talk about the tone and the mission of the new paper. 
David, that, I think, is, uh, as a journalism professor, the biggest revelation that uh, I came away with during my time uh, working at San Quentin News. Uh, Like many, many other journalists of my generation, we were trained to go after stories with conflict. If a story didn't have conflict, it was not a story. And what's happened, and presently we're watching this, that idea of the conflict model has overwhelmed journalism. Uh huh. That's pretty much all we see now. All you see is gotcha. Somebody uh, said something years ago. It gets pulled out of the archive, and it's a big sensation. And so, you you uh, your sensibilities, I think, get worn out from all of the uh, investigations. Now, I, that's one of those things that I would like to see purged <laughs> from the vocabulary. Uh-huh. Investigation. Give me a break. What are you investigating? Usually it's nonsense. It's, it's uh, nickel and dime stuff that people blow up to make some uh, suggestion it's a major character flaw. Well, in the days of, in the 80s, the investigative potential for uh, the journalists at San Quentin News was limitless. If you walk around the prison yard on any given day, you'll find lots of stuff that, you know, just makes you uncomfortable sure. all the way up to the point that it disgusts you. Well, that's prison. That's just, so you could, you could fill up the newspaper with all of this. And they, they did. They went after things that were important, you know, like the conditions in the mess hall. Well, when you do that, what you do is you put the prison administration on the spot. You're not necessarily going to improve that condition. What you're going to wind up doing is getting yourself suppressed. So it, it, when I got there, I saw that uh, there was a kind of a uh, social compact, <laughs> to coin a phrase, between the inmate writers and the administration. In the new paper, the new reborn San the Quentin new, News. The new, revised, improved San Quentin News. And they made a deal that they could write about the prison experience. Now, this is a big breakthrough. They could write about the prison experience as it affects them, but they could not do investigative pieces that would, uh, in one way or another, uh, embarrass the local administration. Now, that's important. I mean, I mean you're giving yes. up a lot. Mm-hmm. You're giving up a lot. But on the other hand, you have no choice. It's an offer you can't refuse. Right, if you want to do this at all. If you want to do this at all, you're going to play by our rules. Now, the thing that has made San Quentin Quentin News a success is that they've been blessed with a public information officer who is an extraordinary person. And I'm talking about uh, uh, the the lieutenant uh, who was the person who has presided over this ever since they came back, Sam Robinson. And... Uh, he, I think, deserves a great deal of credit because, on one hand, he is firm with them, and there is no nonsense, and they know exactly mm-hmm. where, the, where the white lines exist. 
But on the other hand, he trusts them enough, and he uh, is a reasonable person that they trust him. Yes. And so the stories that they are able to produce have filled a huge void. Now, the, the experience of people succeeding in prison is one that is not often told. Right. And that's what they have been focusing on. They're, they're, they're activists in the sense that they're telling human stories about not just the incarceration experience, but what has happened to them, what happened to them before they got there, and what has happened to them subsequently, after they have been released. And I think this came along at a time when people wanted to hear that story. Yes. More the broadly in the, it, in the culture, not just in prison, but more broadly on the outside. More broadly on the outside. And, and, I, and I, I don't think it's an accident that Orange is the New Black uh, became uh, a, a kind of an anthem, particularly for females. Yes. I mean, that was, that was, it was fictional, right? Sure. But it was a look at what happens and what people do and how they sound and inside prison. Before that, uh, the portrayals that we had of people in prison were more like lockup. You know, yes. where you have all of these heavily tattooed people, and they're all saying all of these violent, threatening things. But that's not the full story. No. It's colorful and it's threatening in the way that entertainment can yes. be, but that's exactly. all it is, and it's only one slice of it. So you had this very different version coming out of the San Quentin News. I think some people who are who are uh, sort of you know familiar to the extent people are with prison journalism will think of the Angolite, the famous uh, magazine that comes out of the Angola prison in Louisiana. Uh, famously hard-hitting, and lots of investigations over the years. I can remember reading the book back in the early 2000s or even 90s, I think it was, that came out collecting stories from the Angolite, and I became a subscriber out of that. And that was a very different kind of mission. Uh, And so some people will ask, as you do in the book, uh, is the San Quentin News producing journalism, or is it something else? Well, it's definitely more on the something else side. Well, what I can say is that <laughs> it's like uh, there are a lot of issues in Angola. I mean, we can just oh, all agree yes. on that. Oh, yes. And I think that the governor uh, governor on down, everybody knows about that. Yes. So the, the Angolite serves a purpose because it's a, it's a kind of a watchdog. Uh, given the, the way things work in Louisiana, you need that. California is different. California is, 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 is worlds different from, uh, from what you see in Angola. But on the other hand, uh, you, you have to acknowledge that you can't publish unless they let you publish. Right. So, and this is, this is a constant tension. It's a constant tension. People are uh, in conversations every week about can we do this story, can we not do it. I'll give you a recent example. Please do. One of my, uh, our star reporter is a guy named uh, Juan Haynes. And Juan uh, was very upset about a practice that goes on in San Quentin in which people who run a fever, they don't go to the hospital. 
they go to solitary confinement. They go to the hole. Oh, my. Yeah. And the reason for that is that there's a prison policy that the, the hospital on the grounds, they have a very few, I think there are like 10 beds that are in isolation in the hospital. But they save those for people with, you know, exceptionally uh, virulent infections, not mm-hmm. just the common flu. So they take people's temperatures. If you report that, oh, I'm not feeling well, they take your temperature. If you run a temperature, they roll up your belongings and walk you out of there, and you go to the hole, also known as the adjustment center. Mm-hmm. And that's the same place they would send you if you if you stabbed somebody. Right. You don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. So what happens? People suppress their symptoms. Right. They don't report they them. They suppress their symptoms. Mm-hmm. It makes everything worse. Yes. Well, Juan was working on this story. Well, this is not something you're going to get into the San Quentin News, because... It, it's just too hot to handle. It raises too many questions. So Juan uh, got in touch with an outside organization that was interested in the story. He went to uh, Lieutenant Robinson and said he was working on it. Lieutenant Robinson said, yeah, you can do this. You can do this story, but you may not use any San Quentin resources to, to do this story. Wow. Juan diligent and foolhardy, he decided he was going to do the story anyway. He had no problem talking to people because the health workers, it's not, they're not evil. They, right. they were saying, yeah, this is terrible. We should, we should, but it goes back to a structural problem. Mm-hmm. They don't have any other place to, so anyway, everybody's cooperating. He's getting information. Juan and I worked on this story. I have to confess, and I'll probably get in trouble for this, but I helped him edit that story. Uh-huh. And since he couldn't use the computers, he hand-wrote the copy, and I edited it in his handwriting. Oh, my. In Juan's handwriting. <laughs> now, it's <laughs> been a long great, time since huh? I ever had to do that. Yeah. Anyway, we got the story together, and uh, he couldn't, you know, he had to send it out by U.S. Postal Service. It just got published uh, the other day. And I'm telling you, it was an amazing story. They, they illustrated it with cartoons. Uh-huh. And uh, the story got out there. Now, this is, to me, an example. Once you get prison journalism going, yes. even though the official publication is not allowed to do the investigative thing, there are other ways to get the information out. Mm-hmm. One of them is the method, kind of the surreptitious method. The other one is just, you know, these guys have credibility, and they could just get in touch with, you know, a journalist and say, look, you really ought to look into this. It's yes. A, and then there, we have the Marshall Project and, you know, other uh, outfits that, that cover these kinds of stories, and they're more than willing to look into it. Yes. But the, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of an openness now for uh, uh, uh uh, watchdog journalism that doesn't necessarily involve the official uh, newspaper itself. Yes. So you say, Bill, in the book that the San Quentin News, as reborn, uh, in the form it has, uh, with its new mission, that it has transformed certain aspects of prison, of the discussion of prison, and even San Quentin itself. Can you talk about that? Well, the, it, it, it's not San Quentin News alone. Uh, it's, 
as one, some, one, one person described it, there's a whole ecology of rehabilitation. And it's unique to San Quentin because, hey, location. It's, right in it's San Francisco. Only prison, only prison in California that's located in a major metropolitan area. It's, it's 20 minutes from the Berkeley campus. Uh, it's like 10 minutes from Marin. So you have a lot of well-meaning people. And um, the studies show that there's more volunteerism around the Bay Area. It's, it's among the top areas in, the, in California for volunteerism. Mm-hmm. So people want to come in and do stuff. And there are more than 2,000 volunteers that come in. Some people umpire baseball games. Some people teach piano. Some people teach yoga. So you have this influx of people from the outside who want to come in and do something. That's all part of the ecology, the environment. It affects the prison staff. The prison staff there, the morale is different compared to the, you know, the level four gladiator schools that are out in the boonies. Yes. What, what's happened is that oh, it, it, the San Quentin News uh, kind of paved the way for uh, a change in attitude. The, the famous podcast now, Ear Hustle. Ear Hustle, yes. Great Ear podcast. To, total separate staff. They work in the same media center, but they all know each other. I mean, the fact that San Quentin News was doing what it was doing influenced the people to try to get audio stories out about their experience in prison. So that's another huge step forward of just people. The reason they put walls around prison is not to keep prisoners in. It's to keep the outside world Uh from knowing what's going on. Right, right. You can keep them in there in other ways. You don't need walls for that. Absolutely not. Yeah. But, But now there's more awareness. The other thing I think is really important is the advent of the Internet and Facebook and Facebook groups because the numbers are so astonishing. Like uh, Michelle Alexander says, like 2 million uh, people incarcerated. Well, that means there are probably about at least 5 million family members yes. who are involved in this. And before, there was no way for them to talk to each other, to organize. Now they can. Now they can, yes. and they are a very effective and potent lobbying group. That's why in California, probably where you are too, there's been a constant soul-searching about uh, the laws that were passed back in the 80s mm-hmm. that it extended, added enhancements and all that, and a lot of those laws are being reexamined and rolled back. That's right. They are, because we have seen uh, the results of the mistakes we made in that era. Um, Let me ask, uh, as we wind this down, uh, you did talk in the book about how this experience has been life-changing, not just for your students who are also involved in this, but for you too. Uh, Life-changing in the sense that it has uh, um, given you a different and more invigorated view of your own profession of journalism. Can you talk about that? Well, there's no question about it. Anybody that's been in journalism for as long as I have, and it's, God bless it, it's, it's 50 years. <laughs> I've seen a lot of changes. And uh, the advent of, of, of the, uh, the Internet and websites and web journalism and the decline of newspapers. Uh, for me, that was 
that ushered in a period of very low morale for me. Yeah, across your profession. Mm -hmm. Across the profession. Uh, One of the uh, quirky things about my teaching, since I was uh, came to Berkeley in the '80s, uh, I used to insist that students wear coat and tie to class because I thought that that was you had to look professional if you're going to behave professional. Mm -hmm. Well, over the years, by the you know, the early 2000s, you couldn't do that anymore. Students would not put up with it because the whole idea of professionalism has declined. Yes. And so I was looking around, and nothing that I was seeing reminded me of what I had come into journalism for. That is, you know, the, the underlying values that I saw, the writing, for example. Yes. We pivoted the video and we stopped teaching editing, I began to ask myself, what's left? Why am I even doing this? Well, when I went to San Quentin and uh, those 12 or so members of the staff were looking at me, Mm -hmm. asking me, how do I do this? Well, that made me believe that there was room to go back to the fundamentals of telling stories with integrity. And not just accuracy, but integrity for the whole context. And there were people that wanted to know about that. And there were people enthusiastic for what I had to say. So it gave me, it lit a fire under me. You know, it was like Mm -hmm. all of a sudden I got religion. I said, yeah, there's room for this. There's room for this. And, 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 And that's why I bring students from Berkeley over there, because I said, it's, it's one thing to sit in isolation over here on a campus with kids that are, uh, you know, their only inputs are, are, are other 20-something. Yes. And to take them over, and they have face-to-face conversations with people from entirely different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And they have to figure out some common language, some, some, uh, some system of communicating. And then they, they start asking about their lives. And... The journalism part comes because those very same students, and I've now had, you know, enough experience of it, you know, like a decade, they go out into their professional careers and they take this with them. Yes. That has got to be life-changing for those students, too. Well, that's what they tell me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for being with us today and talking uh, with us about your book, Um, Our guest has been Bill Drummond. He is the author of Prison Truth, the story of the San Quentin News. It's published by University of California Press. There will be a link to it up on our website. Mr. Drummond, thank you very much for being my guest. It's my pleasure entirely. Stay with us. We'll be right back with Lawyers Behaving Badly. Let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly from the Daytona Beach News Journal and the ABA Journal News Online concerns Florida lawyer Brett 
Hartley. One of the first and most basic things a practicing lawyer must know is that all client funds must be held in a trust account and not used for any purpose except the purposes of doing work for the client. And those funds may not be mingled with any other funds. Lawyer Hartley seems to have missed these basics in his legal ethics class. That's if he took that class and attended a single session. It seems things weren't right with Lawyer Hartley's trust account. An audit by the Florida Bar found that Lawyer Hartley had decided to use his trust account in an unorthodox way. He turned it into a business operating account for one of his own side businesses. That side business was called, wait for it, Flash Dancers, an adult entertainment venue. In regular English, a strip club. Fortunately, Lawyer Hartley had a perfectly good explanation for why he turned his legally sacred trust account into the financial engine of his strip club. He testified that funds for the business were deposited into his trust account and withdrawn for operations because he couldn't find a bank that would allow him to operate a business checking account for an adult nightclub. Really? In Florida, where banks have, oh, just occasionally, been willing to turn a blind eye to the sources of cash from cocaine dealers, real estate scammers, and money launderers, they wouldn't take money from a club that featured nude dancing? Yeah, the Florida bar authorities didn't buy that explanation either. And perhaps that was because of the cascade of other funny business that the bar auditors found. Just one such item, Hartley's father-in-law gave him $255,000 to fund a trust for the father-in-law and open a checking account on his behalf. Hartley would then pay the father-in-law $5,000 a month from the trust account. Two payments were made, then the money stopped, and Hartley blew off the father-in-law. No more money. Hartley also stole from multiple clients, it seems. For example, that he had to pay restitution to the court when there was no such restitution order, and then he would keep the money. Sometimes he just accepted funds from a new client and went dark. The Florida Supreme Court has now had its say. He is disbarred. Hartley may yet prove to be a success in the strip club business, but at least he won't be stripping funds from his clients anymore. We'll call that a victory. That is Lawyers Behaving Badly, and that's it for another episode of Criminal Injustice. Remember to subscribe to Criminal Injustice so you can always get us in your favorite podcast app every time, and you'll never miss an episode or our news bonuses or another story of a lawyer behaving badly. Remember that now we are listener-supported. Please go to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. I am David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Find show notes and past episodes at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.